We're recording. All right. Hello and welcome to All Things Japanese from the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center in Toronto. Our topic today is the story of samurai. My name is John Ota and I serve on the art committee and the board of the JCCC. Thank you for joining us. We're honored to have our special samurai expert guests today. First is James Heron, executive director of the JCCC and of the Toronto Japanese Film Festival. James will discuss samurai films and the international popularity of these films. This samurai podcast supplements the screening of the samurai marathon 1855 film presented by the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center on Friday, August 20th to Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. Our second guest is Michael Wirt, professor of history at Marquette University and author of the book, Samurai, A Concise History. Michael is a samurai scholar and author, and he'll present the history of the samurai in Japan, their function in society and their impact on Japanese culture. James, Michael, how are you today? Great, living the dream. <laughs> Very well, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. James, I love samurai films. What is it that's so attractive? The drama, the culture, the excitement? Why has this been such a popular film genre? Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting, uh, John. Yeah, um, you know, samurai films, as well as samurai television programs in Japan, are, I think are very much similar to what Westerns uh, are here in North America. Um, they're sort of traditional stories of honor and violence set in an earlier time. Uh, both are, were very popular in the middle of the last century, but uh, to a certain extent, I think they've been in decline since then. Um, samurai films are, are a kind of jidaigeki, which means a historical drama, and they often fall under the category of chambara films, which means sword fighting films. The samurai films really became known in the West in the 1950s and 60s when Akira Kurosawa and his contemporaries like Masaki Kobayashi were making films like The Seven Samurai or Hyojimbo or Harakiri. And these films began to win uh, film festival awards and they began to draw the attention of Western audiences. And I think part of their appeal at least was simply the fact that the genre was being represented by some really compelling uh, films, some recognized masterpieces. Uh, Jidaigeki films are still made today um, and are often popular, um, but they tend not, not to be drawn from classical literature, but often from manga and will often be more sort of highly stylized or you know, with fantastical elements included. And I'm thinking of films like the, uh, the, the popular Dudoni Kenshin series. Um, Samurai Marathon is something, uh, something a little bit different, a little bit in between. Um, it has a, you know, uh, an all-star cast of um, some very popular young actors as well as you know, uh, very classic actors. Um, it's actually directed by a British director and it has a British uh, producer as well and a magnificent score by Philip Glass. And, you know, it might be hard to believe that it's actually based on a true story 
um, although a lot of additional sort of subterfuge has been added to, uh, to beef up the, um, the dramatic elements. But it takes place uh, in the 1850s. So around the time of the arrival of Matthew Perry's um, black ships. So this prompted some, a lot of reactions, a lot of odd reactions around the country, because again, Japan had been closed off for centuries to the outside world. And one Lord in uh, Annaka uh, decided the best way to prepare his troops for the onslaught of modernization was to hone their mental and physical discipline through a marathon, through running. So this tradition was sort of, sort of um, revisited back in 1975 and has become an annual event in the uh, Annaka um, with most participants um, participating in traditional Japanese garb. And it spawned a novel uh, in, in 2014 by Akihiro Dabashi. And uh, now again, Bernard Rose's film, which we'll be able to enjoy this weekend. So um, yeah, so I hope everyone watches it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, James. That sounds like a fascinating film. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you for that description. I'll be watching for that this weekend. Michael Wirt. Yes, Welcome sir. to the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. Thank you for being here. This is great. It's so nice to have you. And My welcome pleasure. to Canada. <laughs> My welcome pleasure. To Canada. <laughs> Michael Wirt is Associate Professor of East Asian History at Marquette University, specializing in early modern and modern Japan. And he's a leading scholar of Japanese and samurai history. Michael Wirt is the author of Samurai, A Concise History, a lively and approachable introduction to the samurai class and its influence on Japan. Michael, who were the samurai? What is their history and what was their role, please? Right, so if we talk about the Tokugawa period with also known as the Edo period or early modern Japan, the time period in which this film takes place, the samurai have become essentially sword wearing bureaucrats, right? So there's one, there's one famous scholar who said that samurai go from being sword wielding warriors to sword wearing bureaucrats. And I think that comes out really well in this film. I've seen parts of this uh, samurai marathon film before, and they do a great job of illustrating how a lot of the samurai are out of shape because they're accountants. Yeah, they have swords. Yeah, there's some legacy of them having been warriors at one point, but you know, by the 19th century, even into the even 18th and 17th centuries, they're largely divorced uh, from war. But if we go further back uh, to the origins of warriors in general, say like the 8th century or the 9th century, what constitutes a samurai is somewhat ambiguous. On one hand, samurai literally means one who serves. And so they are a certain rank of nobility whose function is to kind of manage and gather warriors who would not be considered samurai, you know, mercenaries or vassals, retainers. And their function was essentially to act as a national guard of sorts. You know, they would go after criminals, they would put down rebellions, they might put down uh, campaigns by the so-called barbarians, which would be groups of people way to the northern part of Japan or way to the southern part of Japan. They might prepare for a possible invasion from the Korean kingdoms or from China or something like that. And so in those days, what, again, what constitutes a samurai is kind of ambiguous. 
Um, all warriors, all, all samurai were warriors, but not all warriors were samurai nonetheless. And then we get into the Middle Ages, let's say around the 15th, 16th centuries, where you have large scale combat, the Warring States period, where a lot of Kurosawa films take place in that time period. And there again, you have a much kind of broader definition of warriors. Some of them were warrior families from centuries before. Some of them were new warrior families, but it's you can kind of go across the commoner samurai line in terms of status. But once we get into the Tokugawa period, again, when this film takes place, it's very strictly divided who counts as a warrior and who does not count as a warrior. Uh, but warrior is simply the kind of, you know, English translation of a group of people who are warriors in, in name and in legacy and in cultural markers, but aren't necessarily engaged in warfare itself. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much. <laughs> so uh, how did you come to study samurai? Well, yeah, so actually I was in graduate school, I was trained to be an expert in the Tokugawa period. And because the warriors uh, have their own regime, they essentially control all of Japan. One has to know a lot about warriors. Uh, and then many years ago, after writing my first book on a different topic, the historical memory of the Meiji Restoration, which is kind of like their version of the American Civil War, a small scale version of it. Uh, I was asked to write a, a much broader book on uh, just kind of introducing warrior uh, history itself. As to how I got into Japanese history, I'm kind of a cliche of my age group. Uh, you know, I was a karate kid uh, in the 90s when I was in high school and did martial arts through high school and college and when I lived in Japan. Uh, and that's how I got interested in Japan. Excellent. So did you have fun writing your book on Samurai? It yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. It was also very difficult because, you know, these books are supposed to be very, very short, 30,000 words. And how do you fit in, you know, uh, you know, over a thousand years of history in, into such a little space. So it was tricky, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, good. That's good. What are some of the truths and some of the misconceptions of Samurai? Right. Well, let's start with some of the misconceptions. I think one of the big misconceptions is this whole idea that there is a code of the samurai, the Bushido code, which is supposedly about, you know, death before dishonor, loyalty onto your Lord instead of betraying them, or, you know, being able to and being willing to accept death at, at any moment. That's really a part of Japan's wartime propaganda. Um, it, it, it's, not, it's an idea that existed in somewhat in the Tokugawa period. Um, but more often than not, for example, if your Lord died, you would essentially, you would just work for another Lord or find employment elsewhere. You know, you wouldn't kill yourself or, or something like that. And honor, I mean, I, if you watch this film, you'll see a lot of guys who are, you know, not very honorable. I mean, there were samurai who were beggars, who were fortune tellers, who joined gangs, who bought and sold swords, uh, and this, this sort of thing. So that's one of the myths that they're this very honorable death before dishonor type. Um, I think the other kind of big myth is the, the efficacy and the importance of swords to samurai. In much of Japan's military history, it was the bow and arrow that was really the kind of main weapon used in warfare. The sword was kind of a sidearm. You know, you wouldn't go off to war shooting your sidearm in, in combat. In the same way, the sword was 
used more for personal protection or decapitating a foe so that you could get paid. And that was the one way that you got paid is you decapitated your enemies. Um, and so the sword really becomes a marker of status more than anything else in the Tokugawa period. And I think that's where this myth that the sword is the soul of the samurai uh, arises from. As for some of the truths, um, uh, yeah, geez, I think a lot of newer films like Samurai Marathon do a pretty good job of depicting the kind of various different types of samurai one would see. In other words, you'll see a lot of recent samurai films that will show samurai who are not good at swordsmanship, who are out of shape, uh, who are kind of lowly and, you know, almost like a beggar or something like that. And, and I kind of appreciate that kind of new way of portraying uh, more accurately what some of the samurai were like. How did you find this kind of thing out? I mean, there's, there is so much propaganda and imagery uh, surrounding this. And how did, how did you distill right. this? Right, yeah. Well, I mean, if, we're, if we look at English language sources and, and anyone can do this, any of your listeners can do this, there's a wonderful autobiography called Masui's Story. Um, it's out of print, but you can buy a used copy very cheaply. And it's essentially an autobiography by a low-ranking samurai who is essentially telling his son, look, you need to be better than me. I was a beggar. I was a fortune teller. I was a gangster. I was under house arrest for a while. You know, So we do have translated into English uh, memoirs, autobiographies, uh, and other commentaries that kind of give you a sense of, wow, you know, the samurai weren't all this kind of, you know, honorable stuff that we might have seen in popular culture in the United States from the 1970s or something like that, right, which had a much more, bought a little bit more into the propaganda about samurai uh, um, that was popular during the wartime, yeah. <laughs> Is there a samurai influence in Japan today? What's, what's the impact of samurai today? Yeah, gosh, you know, impact. I don't really see a lot of impact on Japan today, other than they're kind of a source of uh, pride in terms of history, something that makes Japan unique, something that makes Japan different from other East Asian countries, for example. Uh, something that Japanese can point to and say, look, you know, here's something cool that people abroad like to see, you know, samurai, right? Samurai and manga, samurai and anime and this kind of thing. That's where I think a lot of the influence is. Sometimes I hear, maybe I'm mistaken, but, but you know, so-and-so, the head of a corporation comes from samurai. And I, I think, you know, that samurai culture is in their company. Is that a myth? Um, yeah, that's largely a myth. I mean, samurai never made up more than 8% of the total population of Japan during the Tokugawa period. And I don't really see a lot of people claiming samurai status as a, as a point of pride. I mean, the only samurai, the only person I met who was of samurai heritage was my mechanic when I was in uh, Japan. Other than that, I didn't know any mayors or governors or anything like that. Usually company heads will try to trace their lineage to the merchant class. You know, like we are, you know, the Mitsui family was this big merchant family and then they created a, you know, a monopoly during the wartime and now they make these things. That's usually where we see this. Uh, type of thing going. But it's certainly true that in the early 20th century, there was an attempt to say, oh, you know, we have this 
you know, a stoic samurai ethos that makes us good businessmen or something like that. But yeah, that's, that's just mostly, you know, made up stuff. Right. Well, you know what? Samurai mechanic works for me, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) James, do you have anything to add to this? Uh, actually, no, I'm fascinated to to hear Michael's, uh, um, description of, of samurai. I've, I've, um, I've always tended to, to, to look at samurai culture through the movies and, uh, uh, this, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, entirely fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, James. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for those reflections. I think you've really uh, contributed to our understanding of samurai. So information on Michael Wirt's book, Samurai, A Concise History, will be on the podcast website of the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. That's jccc.on.ca. Michael, did you want to add anything about your book? You said, I think you mentioned it's coming out in in, uh, paperback. Right. There is a paperback version of this book, Samurai, a very short introduction that came out at the end of June. So if you're looking for a slightly less expensive copy, uh, it's a couple dollars uh, less expensive. You can also find that on Amazon. That's great. And if you could send us any any additional information about your book, we'll post that. Okay, great. On great. the website. Um, that, that would be wonderful. Again, this Samurai podcast supplements the screening of Samurai Marathon 1855 film presented by the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center on Friday, August 20th and through to Sunday, August 22nd. You can buy your tickets for the film at jccc.on. In conclusion, I want to thank our guests today, James Herron, yay, thank you, and Michael Wirt, yay, thank you, thank you for for coming here from the United States. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to our discussion on the story of Samurai. Thank you for joining us today. My name is John Ota, and this has been All Things Japanese from the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center in Toronto. Arigato. Arigato. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.